Good morning. Welcome to our Sunday gathering. And as most of you know, I've been teaching through the Beatitudes, which are contained in the Sermon on the Mount. And if you're unfamiliar with this, the Sermon on the Mount is contained in the book of Matthew, chapter 5 to 7. Now, the Sermon on the Mount is not Christ's first sermon, but rather it is a complete sermon that we have available to us. And in the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, in the beginning of the sermon, we have what is known in Christendom as the Beatitudes. And these are nothing more but a declaration of blessings. Now, I need to be very clear this morning. The Beatitudes are a description of the character of Christ's people. They're a description of genuine kingdom citizens. The Beatitudes are not, listen carefully, a checklist, a grocery list, a to-do list, a list of things that one ought to perform in order to be part or belong into the kingdom of God. But rather, the Beatitudes gives us the identity, the character, a profile, the internal and external disposition of kingdom citizens. Now, kingdom citizens are men and women of every tribe, every tongue, of every nation that have been scattered throughout history who truly enjoy the blessings of belonging to Jesus Christ. So please open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. And as you're opening your Bible, and at, or as you're pulling it up on your device, please allow me to give you a review of what we've covered thus far in our study of the Beatitudes. Now, as I said just a few moments ago, the sermon was given by Jesus Christ, and it was recorded for us by an eyewitness to this sermon who heard it firsthand. And it's recorded in the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew was a tax collector. He was a blue-collar worker. He was considered to be, by the Jews of his day, public enemy number one. You see, he was hated for his chosen profession. He was a Jew who was working on Rome's behalf, collecting taxes on Rome, and he was adding a few fees here and there in order to make a, a living for himself, which, by the way, as a side note, was a lucrative business. And for this, he was hated. And in the beginning of the sermon, of Christ's sermon, we, we hear, we could hear Christ describe the way of blessedness, the ways of blessing, the way of happiness. Now, please bear with me and use your imagination this morning. I trust caffeine's kicked in. Amen? All right, so if you and I had Christ's original manuscript, if we had his outline, if we had his sermon notes, we would find the word blessed or the Aramaic word for blessing or blessed, but we do have the Greek word makarios, which I frequently use. We would find this word in his outline. We would find this word, not only that, it would be highlighted, it would be underlined, it would be in all caps, possibly bolded or italicized, in a larger font, or whichever literary tool you have at your disposal that would help you recognize the importance of this word. We don't have his original manuscript, if you will, his sermon notes, but what we do have by divine providence is the actual words that came out of his mouth, and these are under divine inspiration. So as you look at Matthew chapter 5, and as we look at this text, which is approximately 2,000 years old, we need to re recognize the following that repetition, I'll say it again, repetition, I'll say it again, repetition was the ancient highlighter. Repetition was the ancient highlighter. And please recognize that Christ will repeat the word 
makarios, the word blessed, the word happy to us time and time again in the Beatitudes. So what does it mean to be blessed? Other Bible translations use this word or translate this word as happy, for, fortunate, oh the many blessings, oh to be envied or supreme, uh, supremely blessed. Now the question that we have this morning before us, who are the truly happy men and women? Who are the highly favored? Who are the blessed bunch that are worthy of all envy? And it's right there before us. So please read with me Matthew chapter 5 starting in verse 1. Seeing the crowds, speaking of Christ, he went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and he taught them saying, there he goes, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And the last time we studied this passage together, we read and we studied verse 5. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Now this proclamation of blessing, or who is blessed, is followed by a description, a, a condition, a disposition, a response, a behavior, if you will, of such blessed person. So let me try to summarize what Christ has told us thus far. Christ has told us that the spiritual beggar, the indigent person, the person that possesses spiritual bankruptcy, is the one who recognizes their total inability to save themselves. And this person is truly happy because the kingdom of heaven belongs to that person. Christ has further told us that the person who mourns over their personal sin against a thrice holy God, they are happy because they will be comforted by that God. Christ has told us that those who are meek, those who are gentle, those who are humble, those who are mild. And if you were here last time I taught in March, you remember my bell pepper illustration. Those people are happy because they shall inherit the earth. And listen to this, saints. These gentle, mild, and humble people will inherit the earth without promoting themselves, without fighting for their rights or demanding their rights, without yielding a sword or weapons of mass destruction, military tanks, or in my case, a sharp machete. Do you remember? And at the heels of that truth, Jesus Christ says the following. Please follow along with me. Matthew 5, verse 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. I will read that again because I want to highlight this in our thoughts. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Let's pray. Father, we humbly, humbly come before you. We thank you because you have given us your word. We thank you that the word made flesh came and he abode, uh, He was abiding amongst men and he made the written word of God so clear to us this morning as we look at this text. I pray that by your grace and by your spirit that we will be able to see clearly the, king, uh, the condition and the character qualities of kingdom citizens. That we will long and pray and hope for righteousness like you have described for us. We pray in Christ Jesus' name. Amen. I'll read it again. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Now I trust that this beatitude will resonate with every single person here, since all of us here had experienced hunger and thirst at one point or another. Amen? Fair enough? 
believers and unbelievers, saints and sinners alike. Now the question I have for us this morning is this. How long have you gone without eating? Think about it. How long have you gone without eating? Now there's some here this morning that might say a few days. Some men might say maybe a few hours. But by the look of some of your faces, some of you are looking a little faint, a little weak, a little pale. Some of you can't wait for me to wrap up the sermon to go grab a bite to eat. So as you can tell, food and drink are very important and a necessity in order to sustain life. So, saints, what makes us human is that we are not self-sufficient. We are men and women that need many things, specifically food and drink, for without them we cannot remain alive. Now, some of you know this better than I do. Take it for what it's worth, but some survival guides, uh, guides warn about the rules of threes under certain conditions or certain people that are able to survive up to three weeks without food and up to three days without water. Now, I want you to think about this, that Jesus is saying exactly this. And I believe that living in a first world country where there's an abundance of food, when there's a Starbucks in every corner, there's uh, so many food options at, at wherever we look, this beatitude will stand out. It will stand out before us because we could all relate with desiring or wanting food. For some of us here present this morning, food is always on our mind, always on our thoughts. Don't admit to it. I'll admit it for you. You, we wake up with the thought of coffee, donuts, bacon. Are you hungry yet? And some of, some of us, as we wrap up breakfast, we're already making lunch and dinner plans. So I would concede that as a nation, we idolize food. We crave it. We long for it. We, we, we desire it. We become excited over food. We search for recipe books, food shows, that perfect meal, fancy ads and colorful menus that excite us to the core. And the truth is that food has always been a part of man, and I've said this before, but it's, I, I want to repeat it. But I would say that none of us here have experienced hunger and thirst like the audience that heard these words from Jesus Christ. You see, there were no supermarkets back in his day. There was no grocery chains. There was no refrigeration. There were no restaurants. Times were difficult. Listen here, children. Times were difficult. There were no in and outs available. But it was common for them to experience famine, small-scale farming, and they had to prep for times of need. And I've given this before. As we look at a brief overview of food, in Genesis 3, we find that in the Garden of Eden, food was in, and its false advertisement and its false promises was in full display. In Eden, like the Puritans most often would say, there was an exchange for paradise of paradise for an apple. In Genesis, we find a further exchange with Jacob and Esau, an exchange of blessings, covenantal covering, prominent position, uh, godly example and leadership that came with being the firstborn for 24 ounces of bean stew. Furthermore, further down in history, we find Eli's son who held the priestly office. These men refused to display godly lives. They engaged in immorality rather than holy devotion to Yahweh. These men took the meat from the sacrifice taking it by force at times. Now, their father, Eli, disapproved. However, he was partaking of the meal of the meat when, the, when his kids were bringing home. And for this, he was judged also. And we could go on throughout Scripture, and we end up in the book of Revelation, where no one will be able to buy or sell unless they have the mark that is the name of the beast or the number of its name. So as you can see, food and drink are very important to sustain life. And I want you to capture this. 
that Christ uses this very real human condition to teach us a spiritual lesson. I'll read it again. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. This morning, if you're taking notes, and they're there, right there on your notes, um, that are already provided for you. Point number one, happy are the hungry. Happy are the hungry. Now, that might be a little bizarre for us to consider, especially that a lot of us become angry when we're hungry, right? Okay, I'm the only one that struggles with this. Um, so what does it mean to hunger and thirst? Think about it for a few moments. What does it mean to hunger and thirst? I'm sure you're asking this question, but and since you're asking this question, allow me to give you an answer. What does it mean to hunger and thirst? It means to pursue, to chase after, to long, to desire, to be in desperate need of something. And we use this phrase quite frequently in sports. The contender is hungry for the world title. Sorry. In politics, the politician is hungry for power. Now, Christ could have just said, blessed are those who hunger and left it at that. Or, blessed are those who thirst and left it at that. But he said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst. And by using these two words, hunger and thirst, he is simply emphasizing a great, a great, a great need. So this is what Christ is saying. Happy are those who realize that they're really, really, really hungry and really, really, really thirsty. Now please notice the following, that Christ did not say, happy are those who are hungry for happiness. See, that's how the world thinks. That's happiness according, according to the world. You see the world, the unbeliever, the unregenerate heart, non-kingdom citizens, they're chasing for happiness. They are hungry for happiness. And they conclude that true happiness is found in money, gold, status, success, positions, authority, influence, recognition, fame, popularity, pleasure, alcohol, drugs, sex, vacation, travel, knowledge, entertainment, education, comfort, luxury. And I'll stop there. But as genuine Christians, uh, uh, kingdom citizens, as genuine Christians, we know that is not so. Children, are you here this morning? Listen. I'm speaking to you directly. Children, listen to me, please. A young prophetess of their own, I'm borrowing from Paul's phrasing in Titus 1.12, said the following words that are too familiar among children, and yes, I'll admit it, even amongst grown adults. Tell me if you recognize these words. Listen, children. I've got gadgets and gizmos aplenty. I've got who's and what's this galore. You want thingamabobs? I've got 20, but who cares? No big deal. Don't act like you don't know it. Come on, guys. I want more. See, there you have it. Things in possess uh, possessions will never satisfy. They will only leave us wanting for more. If in doubt, take a look at the trophies the world presents to celebrities, the rich and famous. They all, they all have the perks on this side of eternity. They have all the bells, all the whistles, all the toys. But they're miserable. They are not blessed. You see, Satan and the world only offers false promises, false advertisement in order to deceive many. Let me give you an illustration or something that happened to me several years ago. I took my family to the wild animal park in San Diego. And after a long day of enjoying family, a long day under the sun, we were all tired. We were all hungry. We were all thirsty. 
And being a man of flesh and blood, being led by my desires, I was hungry. I couldn't wait much longer. I needed food and I needed it now. Man, can you relate? So I hopped on the car and started driving, possibly breaking speed limits. And at the distance, far off out into the horizon, I saw a fast food establishment. Not sure if it was a mirage of sorts, but I saw hope. Life would continue for the Salcedo family. And without thinking it twice, I pulled up to this fast food establishment. I pulled up to the drive-thru. And immediately, saying immediately, as I pulled up, I was captivated by the smells, by the pictures on the menu. Yes, church family, I ordered a burger. But listen, not any burger. The best-looking burger known to mankind. I, I got to describe this perfectly toasted sesame seed bun, ever so juicy beef patty, Melted jack cheese, red tomatoes, green lettuce, and I'll stop because you guys are looking hungry. But after I paid and I received that burger, the sad reality was this, that that burger was staged to perfection. Perfect lighting, perfect angles, and most importantly, impressive photo editing skills. See, when I received that burger, it was utter disappointment because it was small, pale, and most importantly, it was not to size. And so it is with many de devices around us that are distracting us from pursuing righteousness, saints. The Puritan Thomas Brooks wrote the following in the year 1652, and I trust it will serve as a means of encouragement for us to consider. In his book, Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices, in the chapter that is discussing Satan's device to draw the soul to sin, he wrote the following, listen, quote, to present the bait and hide the hook. To present the golden cup and hide the poison. To present the sweet, the pleasure, and the profit that may flow in upon the soul by yielding to sin and by hiding from the soul the wrath and misery that will certainly follow the committing of sin. End quote. So much truth. Now listen to what Jesus said. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. And as I was studying this verse, an observation that stood out is that only those that are hungry and thirsty, those that are in great desperation, realize that they are in great need of righteousness. And now this need, the need for righteousness, cannot be achieved or supplied on their own. For they have no righteousness of their own. Can I hear an amen to that? And I would suggest that this truth is only found in kingdom citizens. This truth is only found in genuine Christians, those that are poor in spirit, those who have seen a holy and righteous God, and in contrast have seen an unrighteous self. Those who have said the same words that Isaiah said in Isaiah 6, Woe is me, for I am a man, for I am a woman of unclean lips. These men and women hunger for thirst, hunger and thirst for what is right. They desire it like a newborn baby that desires milk. They cry out loud, they beg, they ask, they plead, they request righteousness early in the morning, midday, in the evening, and late at night. Now, this is not a foreign concept, saints, because Peter wrote to encourage the saints in Asia Minor. In 1 Peter 2, verse 2, I trust you're familiar with this, and it's in your notes. And he writes, like newborn infants, 
Long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. And the question this morning for us is, does that sound like you? Does that sound like me? Do we desire righteousness like we desire food and water? Ask yourself. And as I was asking myself that very question, I came to the conclusion that sadly, most often, often not, I don't. This is the reality of my heart. I run hard to pursue my wants, my desires, my sin, my comfort, my will, rather than hungering and thirsting for righteousness. And for this, I've had to repent frequently. How about you? Ask yourself and answer internally. And we find that Christ describes that kingdom citizens are men and women who are starving for righteousness. They hunger and thirst for holiness. They hunger and thirst for the word of God. They hunger and thirst to receive victory over sin. They hunger and thirst to, to uh, display Christ-likeness, godliness. They hunger and thirst to display the fruit of the Spirit, which is love, joy, peace, patience, self-control, kindness. You see, when you and I hunger and thirst for righteousness, we will not be satisfied with any cheap substitute. We will not be satisfied with any old snack that might come uh, before us. We will not be satisfied by spiritual goldfish, spiritual Cheez-Its, if you will, Pop-Tarts. Genuine Christian citizens desire righteousness wholeheartedly for only that will truly satisfy. Now let me give you a little bit of personal insight here. The longer you walk with Christ, the longer or the more you grow in godliness, the older you become, the more and in return, the more you will start hating your sin. The more you will long for the day when you sin no more, the more you will hunger and thirst for righteousness. But sadly, saints, I have to say this, with a broken heart. Sadly, there are many in the church who run around snacking on other things that will not satisfy. Diligently pursuing money, careers, possession, pleasure. Or how about this? Working hard to escape Christian responsibilities. There's many men and women that are remaining passive with regards to spiritual growth. Passive when it comes to uh, to growing in discipline and holiness, passive in, in sanctification. And then there are others that are trying to clean themselves up with works, only holding on to their religiosity, to their morality, to their legalism, attending church, checking off that box, going to a Christian conference ever so often, reading a Christian book, speaking Christianese. Are you here this morning? Thinking that that will get them into the kingdom of heaven and sadly... They're deceiving themselves. Now, based on Christ's statement, kingdom citizens are men and women who are desperately chasing after righteousness. They're desperately chasing after the righteous one who is Jesus Christ the Lord. I'll read Matthew 5, 6 again. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Point number two, if you're still with me this morning, happiness is a pursuit of righteousness. Happiness is a pursuit of righteousness. So we need to define what is righteousness? Here it is. Righteousness is a quality or state of being morally correct and justifiable. A synonym for this would be rightness, being upright, 
We could also say in doing what God requires, being found right, just, innocent, or pure. Now, as we talk about righteousness, we have to consider that there are two aspects of righteousness. There's righteousness before God and righteousness before men. Let me explain righteousness before men. Historically, being righteous before men could be based or was based on good behavior, duty to country, sacrifice to fellow men, and service to the community. And in most cases, this is only uh, the case when society is in step or in line with Scripture. However, when society turns its back on Scripture and runs away from God, rejecting His law, this results in an assault on anything that resembles God or against anything that reminds them of God. And this is displayed in an attack on marriage, family, an assault on justice, law, I'll even say this, an assault on women, an assault on children, and currently you even see that on an assault on law enforcement. Now, currently being right or being upright or being just before men could look like this, being woke, being inclusive, being politically correct, being uh, tolerant, being non-judgmental. Now, this list that I just gave you could all be accomplished by, by unbelievers. But we know that Christ in the Sermon on the Mount is not simply preaching or proclaiming, be a good neighbor, be a good citizen, be a good person. For in the content, context of the Sermon on the Mount, we see a pattern that Christ is addressing, an internal disposition. He's addressing the heart of his people. We know that days are going to become dark, and we know that days are going to become difficult as Christians. Because the Apostle Paul wrote in 2 Timothy 3, it's in your notes, verses 1 through 7. Please follow along with me. But understand this, that in the last days, there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasures rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Avoid such people. Hold, hold that place for a moment. Now I want you to consider this, saints, that Paul just gave us a description of the culture, but he doesn't stop there. Listen to this. Look at verse 6. For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women and burden, burdened with sin and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Look at verse 6 again. And I believe that as Paul mentions household, he was possibly making a reference to the church. Keep in mind that the early church was gathering in homes. So Paul is telling us that false teachers, false preachers, false pastors, false elders, and yes, even false bishops will be deceiving many in the church. They'll always be learning. Why? Because possibly because they have a shallow, a shallow understanding of the gospel. And it's, just, it's so shallow, they need other things that will come and supplement their gospel. Their gospel will be constantly changing, like the fashion industry, adding new tradition, new speculation, new fads, new meanings, new understanding, never arriving to the knowledge of the truth because they were never inside of the truth. And that sounds precisely like our day. Now, let's leave that righteousness before men. Now, let's focus on righteousness before God. 
What does it mean to be righteous before God, saints? What does it mean? Well, we're not left to our own devices or to our own to try to figure this out because God the Holy Spirit has already told us in Romans chapter 3. It's in your notes. Verse 21 and 22. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. Verse 22, there it is. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction. So having read this truth, we are found righteous before God, or righteousness before God is only accomplished through faith in Jesus Christ. Can I hear any amen to that truth? Righteousness before God is found through faith in Jesus Christ. You see, as we rest our truth in the gospel, as we rest, rest our truth on the good news of salvation, that we are, we, we are justified, we are righteous, we are innocent before a thrice holy God, and having faith in Christ is manifested in the following, Colossians 3, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which you were called in one body, and be thankful. We let the peace of Christ, the message of peace, which comes from Jesus Christ, the good news of salvation, the gospel of Jesus Christ. We let that information rule in our hearts, govern our hearts, compel us to obedience, persuade us to do right, judge right, uh, rightly, umpire every decision, uh, governing our emotions, our desires, our behavior, and our longing. However, know this, saints, that being found righteous before God may result with you being found unloving, old-fashioned, dogmatic, narrow-minded, unsophisticated, and unrighteous before men. Would you agree? If you're in any doubt, look at the righteous one, Jesus Christ, and see how they treated him. And although this might be the outcome, as kingdom citizens, we still hunger and thirst for righteousness. We have hunger and thirst and a longing after what God desires. We affirm what God affirms. We reject what God rejects. We love what God loves. For our allegiance is to the King of kings and Lord of lords. Now I trust in a group this size, there might be some of you here listening to this truth, and you might feel a little discouraged as you see the moral decay of our country. You might be sitting here, maybe internally praying, come, Lord Jesus, come. But I want to encourage you this morning with the following. That though, is, that though God is tearing up the nations, America included, he is building up his kingdom. Amen? You're not convinced. Though God is tearing up the nations, and that might include the United States of America, he is building up his kingdom. His citizens are men and women who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Amen? His kingdom is not uprooted. His law will not be rescinded. His, ver his verdict will not be influenced by mob rule. His throne room is not under siege, saints. His courtroom is not set ablaze by rioters or looters. His kingdom is unshakable. His kingdom is forever. Amen? Amen. And this is the truth that the church has sung for the last 500 years. And we've sung it here. A mighty fortress is our God. And I sure you know these words. If you know them. Recite them with me. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God has willed his truth to triumph through us. Amen. Hunger and thirst for righteousness. Consider that combination. Hunger and thirst for righteousness. 
Another observation is this, saints, that these men and women are pursuing righteousness. That's it. They're pursuing righteousness and not a righteous organization, a righteous political party, if you will, or even a righteous country or a righteous zip code, but they are pursuing righteousness. Another observation is this, that these men and women are hungry and thirsty for righteousness, but this is a personal individual need, a personal individual response, a need that cannot be imposed or imparted on others. Simply put, you are either hungry or you're not. Amen? You're either hungry or you're not. But saints, we all must be aware of this, that some of us, by grace, we might be growing in godliness. We might be growing in Christ-likeness. And some of, us, some of us might be tempted, as we're growing in grace, to look at others with contempt. Let me specify. Husband, looking at your wife. Wife, looking at your husband. Brother, looking at your sister. Sister, looking at your brother. Children, looking at your parents. Parents, looking at your children. And we become angry when we see little to no growth in their life. And I would say that simply, when we do so, we sit in a throne of self-righteousness as we're passing harsh judgment on others. We fight, we argue harshly, we discourage others, we become embittered, and we because we're engaging in a sin of comparison. Let me take it a step further. Husband comparing their bride with other godly women. Wives comparing their husband with other godly men. Parents comparing their children with other godly children. Children comparing their par uh, parents with other parents. You know what, what this results in? Let me be very clear. It results in greater unrighteousness, discouragement, anxiety, bitterness, anger, resentment, negativity, a censorious spirit, a judge judgmental and pharisaical heart. And of this, we have to repent. Listen, saints, in a group this size, I trust I just diagnosed your heart. Because I know this is true of my heart. Rather than having a righteous response, when we see those that are around us that are not growing in grace, in all humility, we come alongside them and we encourage them, encourage them with the word of God. Privately, we intercede in prayer for them. We cry out to God to quicken their hearts. We cry out to God to give them a new heart, a heart of flesh rather than a heart of stone, that God would change their desires from the inside out, that God would give them hunger and thirst for righteousness. Now with this, I'm not saying that we never call others to repent. We never call others to obedience. We never call others to truth of scripture because this is something that we do on an ongoing basis. I'm simply pointing out the subtle and eternal heart response as we start judging others based on our standards. So now I know we've, we've mentioned righteousness, but what does it mean? What does that mean practically, Danny? Help me out. What do you mean righteousness? I want to know. Well, for starters, as sinners, we acknowledge that we're all uh, spiritual bank we're spiritually bankrupt. Amen. We can't save ourselves. Secondly, we, we mourn over our personal sin and we seek to be meek. Now in the home, husband, I'm gonna address you first. As a husband, how do you pursue righteousness? You die to yourself. Because I know that repetition is the ancient highlighter. I'm gonna say that again. Husband, you die to yourself. In case you missed it. Husband, you die to yourself. You die to your wants, your desires, your needs. And you serve. Ephesians 5 has told us as Jake spent many Sundays explaining that truth 
as husbands, you seek to live with your brides in an understanding way. First Peter 3, in an understanding manner, seeing that they're provided, that they're being cared for, that they're being shepherded. And if there's any conflict between that, you 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 make you diligently you pursue reconciliation. You pursue to make that that relationship right. You know why? Because your worship, your prayer, your communion with God is affected. Let me be very clear, because this is what Peter warns us, that if there's conflict in the marriage, husband with wives, and that hasn't been resolved, your prayers are not answered, men. I'm not saying this. God the Holy Spirit has said this. That's how you pursue righteousness at home. Wives, you're here this morning. How do you pursue righteousness? Let me help you out. You submit yourselves to your husband. The husband doesn't submit you. You submit yourself to your husband. Danny, but you just don't understand the husband God gave me. I don't, but he does. Furthermore, in 1 Peter 3, we find that Peter encourages the women of his day to submit themselves to their husband. And he highlights an old saint, an old woman. And he calls her by name. Sarah submitted herself to her husband, Abraham. And then take it a step further. She did it without fear. Then take it a step further. She called him Lord. Now relax, guys. That's lower case L. Fathers, how do you pursue righteousness at home? Very clearly, Jake has been hitting this for the last several weeks. We love, we shepherd, we discipline and instruct our children. We do not provoke them to anger. We do not exasperate them. Children, I know you're asking the question, how do I pursue righteousness? Here's the answer. You obey your parents. Neighbors, how do you pursue righteousness? You love your neighbor. Citizens, how do you pursue righteousness? Not hold on to the Constitution. No. You pursue righteousness by praying for your leaders, submitting to your government. And when there's a conflict between the two, when the government is telling you to do this, but God has told you to do that, our allegiance is to the king of kings, and we pursue that, even though that might bring about some consequences. Amen? So let me bring this truth to bear with the authority of God's word. Open up your Bible to 2 Peter 1. It's not in your outline. 2 Peter 1, 5 through 11. <clears throat> 2, Peter, 2 Peter 1, 5 through 11. For this very reason, this is Peter writing, listen to this, how clear it is. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith. I'll stop there. It's not just about believing. Make every effort to supplement your faith with what? Virtue. And virtue with knowledge. And knowledge of self-control. And self-control with steadfastness. And steadfastness with godliness. And godliness with, uh, godliness with brotherly affection. And brotherly affection with love. Look at verse 8. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 9. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he has cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. Verse 11. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance 
into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. There it is. So as we look at the Sermon uh, sermon on the Mount again, Matthew 5, 6, the question we ask, why should we pursue holiness, godliness, purity, uh, purity or righteousness? It's right there in the text. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Point number three, righteousness will always satisfy. Righteousness will always satisfy. Homeschool children, I'm speaking to you this morning. Listen up. You're going to be excited. Look at that verb, satisfied. You're going to like this. That word, that verb right there, let me define it first. Satisfaction is to meet a need, to fulfill a desire. And that verb, satisfied, is found in the future passive indicative verb. I know you guys are getting excited, homeschool children. This is what it means. Future verb, we know this. As we, we think of time linearly, it's not talking about right here and now, but it's talking about a time period to come. This is a passive verb, which means that the kingdom citizens, because they are the subjects of this uh, sentence, they are the recipients of the actions. They are not the agents of the action. In other words, they can't, they can't satisfy themselves. And this is an indicative verb, which means the following. What does it mean? Homeschool children, I know you know this, is a statement of fact, not a probability, not speculation, not wishful thinking, thinking, but a definite outcome. Now, let me simplify this for us blue-collar people. This is what it means. There will be a day for all kingdom citizens, men and women, when all of our desires and longings for righteousness will be perfectly fulfilled, not by our own doing, by our own efforts, by our own performance, but by God. And this is a sure thing because the second person of the Godhead, God declared it in his official manifesto, and we have it here before us. Amen? And the truth is that here on earth, we get to taste a little bit of righteousness. And this is seen in the evidence of God's grace in our life when we respond in obedience and full dependence in Him, when we walk in faith, when we trust Him above anything else, when we take our feelings, our emotions, our desires, our thought life captive to the obedience of Christ, when we seek to align our lives to the inspired written Word of God. Practically, this should be the response of our heart. In the midst of trial, Christ should be our satisfaction. Wives, when your husband disappoints you, let Christ be your satisfaction. Husband, when your wife disappoints you, let Christ be your satisfaction. If your marriage is falling apart, cry out to God, but let Christ be your satisfaction. As your children disobey and rebel, let Christ be your satisfaction. And if you're about to lose your job, let Christ be your satisfaction. And as your health deteriorates, let Christ be your satisfaction. Now we read it in scripture reading this morning. But King David wrote a wonderful psalm. And that, like I've said, it's the book of Psalm is Israel's greatest hits contained for us to read and study. So this is an oldie but goodie, which has been recited, has been prayed, has been preached, has been memorized by many sheep as a means of encouragement. It's been around for approximately 3,000 years. Psalm 23, it's in your notes. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pasture. He leads me by still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in path of righteousness for his namesake. There it is, saints. David describes his relationship with God, and his God will lead him. Lead him to green pastures. He'll lead him beside still waters. The shepherd will restore his soul. 
And that is great news for us. For the wonderful shepherd does the same for his kingdom citizens. Amen. Are you encouraged with that truth? I am. So now there's a few questions that I want to ask as I wrap up our time. I'm asking you to examine yourself. Do you hunger and thirst for righteousness? If you're unsure, ask yourself, what's leading my life? Do I strongly desire to do what God has said? Furthermore, ask yourself, is Christ my greatest treasure? Now, as you're trying to answer these questions, a good gauge, a spiritual gauge, would be the written word of God. And specifically, how do you respond to the written word of God? If you're responding in obedience, that might be a sign that you're his. But if you respond in anger, resentment, if you're antagonistic, this might be a sign that you're either in disobedience or you're not his. And if that's the case today, I beg you to repent and put your faith in Jesus Christ. See, the great shepherd, the king of kings, is calling you to himself this morning. Furthermore, he's calling you and he's telling you to stop feeding on snacks, spiritual junk food, self-help methods, religiosity, and attempts to clean yourself up by your good behavior to attain a righteousness of your own because you will surely fail. But rather, be like the prodigal son. It's right there in our notes. You see, the prodigal son left his home. He had his father liquidate his assets. The father gave him his inheritance. And the son squandered it recklessly. And when he was in need, he hired himself to be a pig-feeding servant. And this is the lowest of lows. He had hit rock bottom. See, pigs are ceremonially unclean, we know this. But not only that, but now he's feeding them. So he had hit rock bottom. Luke 15, verse 16 and 17, right there in your outline, or in your notes. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? See, saints, when the prodigal was hungry, he was willing to stack or eat pig slop. However, when he was starving, when he was hungry and thirsty, when he saw his great need, pig slop would no longer satisfy. Hence, he came home to his father's house. So saints, if you're living in apathy or defiance towards God, not longing for righteousness, coasting through life, not pursuing righteousness, not growing in grace, having no desire to seek godliness, giving into the tempter, chasing after false idols, false gods, I beg you today to repent and come home to your father's house because he's waiting for you. Isaiah 55, 1 through 7 encourages with the following, for the, with the following truth. The following invitation. Come everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourself in rich food. I'll jump down to verse 6. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Now let me leave you, as I often do, 
with the words, the very words of Jesus Christ when he said, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Let's pray. <coughs> Father, please forgive us this morning. Forgive us for our lack of zeal. Forgive us for not hungering and thirsting for righteousness. Lord, are all we have gone astray. We have not pursued you. We have not pursued righteousness. We have not pursued the righteous one. We have not done what is being described in this beatitude. But rather foolishly, we have run hard after many things that do not satisfy. Now today, I pray that you would give us a heart that longs for you. That you would give us a new heart, new desires, new affections. And I pray that the cry of our hearts would be the lyrics of Moses' song in Psalm 90, where he wrote, Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love, that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.